we recognize and appreciate in an awesome sense the judgment and the wrath of God. This morning, our focus is upon his love and upon his grace and upon his forgiveness. Welcome to First and Foremost, a weekly broadcast of First Presbyterian Church in the heart of downtown Greenville. Senior Pastor Richard Gibbons invites you to join us as we study God's Word together and discover what is first and foremost in our lives. If you have your Bible with you this morning, could you turn with me please to Revelation chapter 14. As we're reading Revelation 14, verses 14 to verse 20. This morning we're beginning a new series of studies in Revelation. And as we break into chapter 14, you'll find it on page 1929 of the Pew Bible, page 1929 of the Pew Bible. Over the next nine to ten Sunday mornings, we'll be spending our time in the book of Revelation. And today, we're coming into chapter 14, as back in 2016, we spent eight or nine Sundays looking at the first six or so chapters. Then last January in 17, we looked at chapter 7 through 13, and today we pick up our studies in chapter 14. We break into the chapter with these words. I looked... And there before me was a white cloud, and seated on the cloud was one like a son of man, with a crown of gold on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. Then another angel came out of the temple and called in a loud voice to him who was sitting on the cloud, take your sickle and reap, because the time to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. So he who was seated on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth, and the earth was harvested. Another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. Still another angel who had charge of the fire came from the altar and called in a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle, Take your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of grapes from the earth's vine, because its grapes are ripe. The angel swung his sickle on the earth, gathered its grapes, and threw them into the great winepress of God's wrath. They were trampled in the winepress outside the city, and blood flowed out of the press, rising as high as the horses' bridles for a distance of 1,600 stadia, which is approximately 180 miles. Amen, and we trust that God will bless to us this reading from his holy word. We are still in these early days of the new year, of course, and I suspect over the last eight to ten days, a number of us have been thinking about New Year's resolutions. And this is, quite naturally, the time of year when we think about exercising more, drinking more water, healthy eating, being careful about this and careful about that, and making sure that we are looking after ourselves. And of course, we understand and realize, and statisticians and sociologists tell us, by the end of January, about 70 to 75% of our best intended resolutions have fallen by the wayside. And my question this morning is this. If you and I were sitting down for an hour with a cup of coffee, entirely relaxed, just 
catching up, and I had asked you, how was Christmas, and how has the new year been so far? And then I began to probe a little and say, how have you been getting on with your new year resolutions? What would you say? And what if I probed a little deeper and asked you in clear, uncertain terms, in terms of your resolutions, how many, if any, were related to your faith? What would you say? How would you respond? This morning, at the bottom of your sermon study notes that came inside your worship folder, if you've got them, take them out for a second. I put down there seven questions. And those questions are designed for use on Sunday morning and throughout the week over these next nine or ten weeks together as we make our way through Revelation. And the first question asks this. What is one thing you could do this year to increase your enjoyment of God? How would you respond? I suspect it wasn't the first question we thought might be asked, but it's a wonderful question. What one thing would you do this year to increase your enjoyment of God? Over the next few Sundays, we'll come back to these questions again and again and ask ourselves, are they helping us get to that richer, deeper, fuller place in our walk with the Lord? In other words, what are our spiritual priorities going into a new year? And what about the second question? What is the most humanly impossible thing you will ask God to do this year? Now, that's quite a question. Something that you simply cannot do yourself. Something that no human being can carry off, make it happen, accomplish it. What is the most humanly impossible thing you will ask God to do this year? Third question. What is the most important way you will, by God's grace, try to make this year different from last year? Now, these questions are beginning to probe a little, aren't they? They're not just standing on our feet. They're walking all over them. Number three, what one thing could you do to improve your prayer life this year? Just one thing. What does that look like? Does that look like setting time aside intentionally? Does that look like journaling? Does that mean that when you meet in your small Bible study group with ladies on a Tuesday morning or men on a Thursday afternoon, you intentionally leave time to pray, not just talk about prayer, not just agree it's a good idea, but to actually leave time to pray? And then what single thing that you plan to do this year will matter most in 10 years in eternity? That's a question, isn't it? What will matter most in eternity to come? Next question, what one biblical doctrine do you want to understand better this year? And what will you do about it? Is it providence? Election? Soteriology? 
Now I'm just showing off, so forgive me for that. Soteriology is the discipline of salvation. Where did it start? How does it work? How does God accomplish it? And then what is the one thing you could do this year to enrich the spiritual legacy you will leave to your children and your grandchildren? Now that may take a few days to think through. Look at it again. What is the one thing you could do this year to enrich the spiritual legacy you will leave to your children and your grandchildren? Now, as we get further and further into Revelation, we're going to pick up on these questions and highlight them and focus on them again as they come to us directly out of the passages we are studying. We'll pause and continue to ask these questions and try and hold each other accountable. Now, some of you, of course, are saying, Richard, I'm here for the first time this morning, and I want to know, is this how you begin every Sunday? And the answer is no, we don't always begin this way. But at the beginning of a new year, I felt it called for us to really begin to ask, are we learning biblical principles Sunday by Sunday? Are we adapting them and then applying them to our lives each day as we seek to live out our faith? And if you are visiting this morning, please understand this, that when you come to First Press, we take worship very seriously. Prayer is a priority for us. The study and application of God's word is at the center of who we are. And so know before you come, that's exactly what we do. Because we are convinced that Sunday morning, by the grace of God, equips us to live out our faith as we engage daily life and live in the messiness and distraction of everyday life, seeking to live out our faith. That's always where we're going to go. Now, how is that connected with the book of Revelation? Well, simply in this sense. When the Apostle John was writing in the year 95 AD, please remember who he was writing to. The first three chapters, he writes to seven churches in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. And please understand this, that in the midst of all that we learn and are exposed to in Revelation, and at times it's complex, and you're about to see some of it this morning, John was writing to real congregations, real people, wrestling with real issues, and they were wrestling with real issues. And so in many ways, Revelation is a discipleship manual for living out your faith in the midst of trying and difficult times. And that's the connection. Now, there are two polar opposite approaches to the study of Revelation. And the first approach is to convince ourselves that it is a bewildering, incomprehensible, opaque book packed with complex imagery, symbolism, and apocalyptic writing, and therefore it is easier just to ignore it than pay attention to it. And sometimes I found myself falling into that category. The other approach, of course, is this. The second approach is to get so immersed in Revelation that the only way to understand the world today and the time we live in is through a detailed, complex, analytical study of Revelation, which then allows us to consider contemporary history as a reflection of events in Revelation. So when you turn on your news in the evening, you are reading the news through the lens of Revelation 
And sometimes that can be helpful, and other times it can be frustrating to say the least. And those are the two approaches. One, you ignore it. One, one, the other, you immerse yourself in it. And therefore, every experience and every news item and every web and blog site and Facebook uh, is read through an understanding of revelation. But somewhere in the middle is where I hope we've been over the last couple of Januaries as we've waded deeper and deeper into Revelation, trying to get a hold of the symbolism and the imagery and the apocalyptic writing, trying to make sense of it, understanding at times that some of the numbers involved are symbolism rather than statistics. And so we'll tease all of that out in coming weeks as well. So as we get further and further into Revelation this morning, let me reintroduce you to it. You know, of course, the opening chapters, as we've already said, were written to seven congregations in Asia Minor. The author, the Apostle John, some New Testament scholars, in fact, a significant number, disagree that it's John. I think personally, as I've read through Revelation and studied it a little and read other New Testament scholars, the weight of evidence does point to the Apostle John. John is someone who was well-known in the infant church. There's no question of that. Very few were more well-known than John. Secondly, he's writing with Jewish background, Jewish motifs and motives come out of this passage again and again, and he knows scripture inside out. All of that we see in John's writing. He's writing around the date 95 AD, and the occasion was when the Roman emperor Domitian for the first time instituted empire-wide persecution of Christians. There had been persecution in local hotspots here and there. It was usually localized, but now for the first time across the entire empire, Christians were being forced to declare and worship Caesar as Lord and God. And Christians had a very difficult time with that and refused or subsequently arrested, some tortured, some put to death. John himself is writing in exile. He has been put on the Greek island of Patmos and he is writing from there. So Christians that John is writing to are going through some dark and difficult days. And please hear this. As John is writing to these seven churches, there is every possibility that the folks in those congregations would have lost a mother, a father, a brother, a sister, a cousin. That's how acute the persecution was towards the end of the first century. Now, having said all of that, where do we go Next, let's look at the passage before us. Chapter 14 is a difficult, complex chapter. In fact, we're coming back to it next Sunday morning to look at the broader themes found in the chapter. But as you begin chapter 14, verse 14, John writes these words. I looked, and there before me was a white cloud, and seated on the cloud was one like a son of man, with a crown of gold on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And what John is describing is this. John is describing the risen, exalted Christ. Throughout the Gospels, Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man. Daniel chapter 7, 30, verses 13 and 14, Daniel says, I saw one like the Son of Man. The phrase Son of Man was part of the opening chapter of Revelation in chapter 1. And now again we find it in verse 14. And here is John 
looking heavenwards, seeing the risen, exalted Jesus sitting on a cloud. And what does he say? Then another angel came out of the temple and called in a loud voice to him who was sitting on the cloud, take your sickle and reap, because the time to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. And so he who was seated on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth, and the earth was harvested. Now there are two main pictures in this latter half of the chapter, and the first is this, Jesus bringing a sickle to harvest. And in essence, it means this. By the time you get to Revelation 14, the culmination of all of history past is coming to fruition. And so here is John looking, history still to come, and he sees the future to come in that great spectacle day when Jesus himself will bring it all to an end. And the imagery is this, he will take a sharp sickle and it will be harvest time. And who is it that Jesus is gathering in in terms of the harvest? It is all of those down through the centuries who have responded to the spectacular spectacular, outlandish love and grace of God offered to us. And that's what's going on. In other words, Jesus is drawing together in the final moments of history, those who have responded to his love in the gospel. That is history coming to its end. But there's also a second picture here. That's the first picture John is giving us, the harvest of grapes, the gathering in. But there's a second picture. In verse 17, another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. Still another angel who had charge of the fire came from the altar and called in a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle, take your sharp sickle and gather the cluster of grapes from the earth's vine because its grapes are ripe. The angel swung his sickle on the earth, gathered its grapes, and threw them into the great winepress of God's wrath. And there they trampled in the winepress outside the city, and the blood flowed out of the press, rising as high as the horse's bridles for a distance of 1,600 stadia. Despite the complex language, the apocalyptic writing, the strong symbolism and imagery, the message is clear. There is a harvest of grapes, those who have responded to the gospel, and there is also a harvest of the judgment of God. Now, quite honestly, I would love to tell you this morning that the judgment of God is not real that God doesn't judge us for our sin. And the wrath of God is something that we used to believe a hundred years ago, but we don't believe it anymore. Well, folks, please hear this. I cannot say that because the Bible does not teach that. And if someone in your office or someone in your neighborhood or someone you know really well sits down with you and is having a conversation and you're getting deeper and deeper into the things of the gospel and they suggest to you that we once believed in the judgment of God. We once believed that sin was real. We once believed that we would need to answer for that sin. But we know so much more today. Please, gently, graciously, helpfully with winsomeness explain that the scripture does not teach that that there will come 
a climax to all of history where Christ will draw his children to himself because they have responded to his love and his grace and have sought forgiveness. But there is also, and it will be a sad and terrible day, and we will look at it in subsequent weeks, when God will ask everyone to account for their sins. Those who have turned to him in repentance and faith will be welcomed in to their eternal reward. And those who have treated God with disdain and contempt and in fact, have dismissed him all their lives, will be responsible for their own sin. Please hear that. Please hear that. And understand this, that in the 21st century, we are simply the same as the first century. We don't get to sit in judgment of this book. This book sits in judgment of us. And when God in all of his love and grace sent Christ into this world, he was not wasting his time. He wasn't treating sin casually. He sent his son to the cross because sin is, is having to be answered. And when we read passages about the judgment of God, hear this as well. But please remember to the judgment of God, there is also the mercy of God and the goodness of God and the love of God. Christ died on the cross for our sins. Do you think he was wasting his time there? No, he was looking forward to eternity still to come and eternity in the past. And the culmination of the salvation of all of humanity happened at Calvary. But if it is ignored, if it is marginalized and minimized, God will take your sin seriously and deal with you as he deals with everyone. And those who have repented of their sin will be welcomed in. And those who have not will face the wrath of God for that sin. There is no such thing as an unimportant sin. It is real and it is true and it debilitates and it cripples lives. And we see it every day in our world today. And that's what Revelation is telling us. Now let me take that a step further. As I said, we will come back to it in subsequent weeks. And this morning on this Communion Sunday, we recognize and appreciate in an awesome sense the judgment and the wrath of God. But this morning, our focus is upon His love and upon His grace and upon His forgiveness. And in a moment or two, when we take this bread and take the wine, we'll be reminded that his body was broken for us. His blood was shed for us. And you may be here this morning and saying, Richard, I understand what you're saying. And I get it. And when you asked earlier this morning the question, what is the one thing you could do this year to increase your enjoyment of God? Let me suggest this to begin with. Our enjoyment of God begins when we remember all that he has done for us. When we rest in his love. When we bask in the 
unmerited grace He has lavished upon us when we go deeper in prayer, when we get to that point of rich appreciation of all that He is and all that has been accomplished for us, then we enjoy Him, give thanks to Him, and are lost in His love and care for us. Let us pray together. Gracious Heavenly Father, this Sunday morning, we, your people, are determined to put first things first. And as we seek to enjoy you in the year ahead, we promise and covenant this morning that on Sunday morning, we will be here in your presence gathering with others to say that to the culture and society around us where faith is important it has something to offer and then Father in, and in so doing we tell you this we love you and we thank you for your grace and ask oh God that you would strengthen us and build us up as a congregation and enable us please to enjoy you in the year ahead and to be thrilled as we seek to grow in faith. Father, thank you for the very practical message of revelation this morning. Bless us, please, as we seek to honor you in the year ahead. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Join us Wednesday evenings at First Presbyterian Church in downtown Greenville. Our Wednesday Advantage program includes an affordable meal and elective classes for adults with Bible study and music for youth and children. Visit firstpressgreenville.org or call 235-0496 for more details.